Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, December the 25th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing up our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the announcement that the Federal Republic of Nigeria, Africa's most populous state, is being forced to reschedule its national debt based upon the global economic downturn. Uh, The United Nations has criticized the expulsion of its diplomat uh, from the West African state of Burkina Faso, we have details on that story as well. There are ongoing problems with the water system in the majority African-American municipality of Jackson, Mississippi, amid a winter storm emergency across the United States. And the number of migrants crossing the southern border in Texas are coping uh, with freezing temperatures. In the second hour, we look back on the 55th anniversary of the historic Massey Lectures by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., delivered in late 1967 over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Finally, we re-examine the life, legacy, and contributions of African-American feminist intellectual and organizer Eliza Mary Church Terrell, who lived during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude with the Orchestra Le Puy Le Puy. And uh, this is classic music uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's listen in. Come on, 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 come on,
Dominica, le reflet de l'an 2000, en direct de la République de Côte d'Ivoire. Bata Mombata en action.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 25th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was a selection of tracks uh, from the orchestra Le Poe Le Poe, a classic uh, Congolese and Pan-African music from the 1970s and the 1980s. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African News Bar segment of our program. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Nigeria will restructure a total of 23.7 trillion naira. That's 53 billion U.S. dollars in short-term loans owned to its central bank. The 40-year debts at 9% interest, that's President Mamadou Buhari, said this in a letter to Parliament seeking approval for the transaction. Africa's largest economy has struggled with low revenues due to crude theft in its oil-producing region. Oil theft cost more than $2 billion during the first eight months of this year, a Senate investigation found last month. Economists say that the Nigerian government is spending more on debt payment than on education and health, but Buhari has said his government had no choice but to borrow its way out of two recessions in the last seven years. Buhari's party has a majority in the parliament, which has never turned down any of his requests for approval. Nigeria's economy has started to grow, but it's fragile, and the performance of its dominant oil sector is weak. In other news, the United Nations uh, yesterday said that Burkina Faso had no grounds for ordering senior United Nations officials Barbara Manzi to leave the country and that the doctrine of persona non grata could not be applied to her. Burkina Faso's military government on Friday uh, put out a statement instructing Manzi, appointed UN resident coordinator last year, to leave the West African country with immediate effect. Foreign Minister Olivia Raamba later accused Manzi of painting a negative picture of the security situation Burkina Faso, which has been grappling with a violent Islamist insurgency since 2015. Manzi predicted chaos in Burkina Faso in the next few months. Ramba said on national television, alleging she had unilaterally recommended the evacuation of some UN staff and their families from the capital of Ouagadougou. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the United States, the city officials in Jackson, Mississippi, earlier today announced that residents must now boil their drinking water due to water lines bursting in the frigid temperatures. In a statement, it says, please check your businesses and churches for leaks and broken pipes, as these add up tremendously and only worsen the problem. This is according to a statement put out by the city of Jackson earlier today. It also said, we understand the timing is terrible. The problem comes months after the water system in Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital, with about 150,000 residents, a majority of whom are African-American, partially collapsed. Most of Jackson lost running water for several days in late August after flooding exacerbated longstanding problems in one of two water treatment plants. Residents had to wait in line for water to drink, cook, bathe, and flush toilets. Along with the order to boil drinking water, city officials said some residents also have reported low water pressure or no water pressure. 
The city's water system saw fluctuating pressure beginning yesterday amid frigid temperatures. The Christmas Day announcement said crews were working to make repairs, but it did not give an estimate on how long the disruption might last. And uh, finally, uh, on uh, the southern border in Texas, after fleeing violence in the Guatemalan town, uh, with their way to relatives in California blocked by continuing U.S. asylum restrictions, a family of 15 joined an Advent Catalyte ceremony organized by a shelter just south of uh, the border. The evening service in the Buen Samar Ritano Shelter's small Methodist church, which doubles as the cafeteria, didn't quite compare with the weeks-long Christmas celebrations they had loved in Nueva Concepcion. Those included fireworks, tamales made with freshly slaughtered pigs, and shared door-to-door with family, and villages carrying aloft a statue of the Virgin Mary from the Catholic Church to different homes each day, singing all the way. It's difficult to leave those traditions behind, but they had to be abandoned at any rate, said Marlon Cruz, who was 25 years old, who had been in Yucca, a plantain farmer in Guatemala. When you go from house to house and hear shots, because of that, we would stay locked up at home. Tens of thousands of migrants who fled violence and poverty in their home countries are spending Christmas in crowded shelters or on the streets of Mexican border towns where organized crime routinely targets them. It is especially cold for those living outside since winter temperatures have plunged over much of the United States and across the border. The Biden administration asked the Supreme Court this week not to lift the pandemic-era restrictions on asylum seekers before the holiday weekend. A lower court had already granted the administration's request to have until December the 21st before rolling back the restrictions, known as Title 42. Restrictions have been used more than 2.5 million times to expel asylum seekers who crossed into the United States and to turn away most of those requesting asylum at the border. With that, so we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Pan-African Journal. And uh, the programs uh, can be shared uh, by copying and pasting the links and putting up the emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The programs can be shared by copying and pasting links uh, to this program and other programs to other blogs and websites. And the links can be shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back. And, uh, that was the Band of Gypsies' uh, second set uh, at the historic uh, Fillmore East concert of December 31st, 1969, uh, featuring uh, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles on drums. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, the special edition of our program. Right now we want to move into our focus on the 
1967 Massey Lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And uh, here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from, we will hold the 20th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Day Rally in March on Monday, January 16th, 2023 at historic St. Matthew St. Joseph's Church beginning at noon. Uh, all those in the Detroit, um, Southern Ontario, Ohio uh, region are welcome uh, to come and join us on this historic occasion. Let's listen to installment two of the Massey Lectures. The Best of Ideas presents the Massey Lectures for 1967 by Martin Luther King. In this second of his five Massey Lectures for the CBC, Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Martin Luther King talks about a subject that has forced him recently to widen his consideration of the possibilities of nonviolence beyond the civil rights work for which he is already famous. That subject is conscience and the war in Vietnam. It is several months now since I found myself obliged by conscience to end my silence and to take a public stand against my country's war in Vietnam. The considerations which led me to that painful decision have not disappeared. Indeed, they have been magnified by the course of events since then. The war itself is intensified. Its impact on my country is even more destructive. I cannot speak about the great themes of violence and nonviolence, of social change and of hope for the future, without reflecting on the tremendous violence of Vietnam, not even when I'm speaking to an audience of Canadians who are not directly involved in the war. Since the spring, when I first made public my opposition to my government's policy, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my decision. Why you, they have said. Peace and civil rights don't mix. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people? And when I hear such questions, I have been greatly saddened, for they mean that the inquirers have never really known me, my commitment, or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In explaining my position, I have tried to make it clear that I remain perplexed as I think everyone must be perplexed by the complexities and ambiguities of Vietnam. I would not wish to underrate the need for a collective solution to this tragic war. Neither would I wish to present North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front as paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they can play and a successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Since I am a preacher by calling... I suppose it is not surprising that I had several reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam 
and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched the program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonical destructive suction tube. And so I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. And so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for the nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would never live on the same block in Detroit. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, but it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. 
for those who ask the question, aren't you a civil rights leader, and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace, I answer by saying that I have worked too long and hard now to gain segregated public accommodations to end up segregating my moral concern. Justice is indivisible. It must also be said that it would be rather absurd to work passionately and unrelentingly for integrated schools and not be concerned about the survival of a world in which to be integrated. I must also say further that something in the very nature of our organizational structure in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led me to this decision. In 1957, when a group of us formed that organization, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. As if the weight of such a commitment were not enough, Another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Prize for Peace was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present... I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nation and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the hunter in Saigon, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators, the Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance 
that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. For nine years following 1945, we vigorously supported the French in that abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come through the Geneva Agreements. But instead, there came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. And the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported that extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all this was presided over by U.S. influence and then by the increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. When Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictatorships seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically, as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know that they must move or be destroyed by our bombs, and they go primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They wandered into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. They wandered into the towns and see thousands of children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we ally ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in crushing one of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political forces, a united Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon, 
we have corrupted thy women and children and killed thy men. What liberators! Now there is little left to build on save bitterness. And soon the only solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. The peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. Could we blame them for such thoughts? We must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps the more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of Diem? and charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? They ask how we can speak of free elections, when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter, their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then show it up with the power of new violence? Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence, and it helps us to see the enemy's point of view to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi. In the north where our bombs now pummel the land, and our minds endanger the waterways, we are met by a deep but understandable mistrust. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with Diem to prevent elections which would have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the Diem regime to
to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreements concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send in any large number of supplies or men until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. Hanoi remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how we claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces, and now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless on Vietnam and to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. But it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war, where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved, and the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. It will become clear that our minimal expectation is to occupy it as an American colony, and men will not refrain from thinking that our maximum hope is to go China into a war so that we may bomb her nuclear installations. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. Last spring, I made public the steps I consider necessary for this to happen. I should add now only that while many Americans have supported the proposals, the government has so far not recognized one of them. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions 
must decide on the protest that best suits his conviction. But we must all protest. That is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the answer. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs or nuclear weapons. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. 
we in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch-anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Dr. Martin Luther King on Conscience and the War in Vietnam. That was the second of his five Massey lectures for 1967. The third one on youth and nonviolent action will be heard next Monday at the same time, 10.30 p.m. Today's talk was recorded in Atlanta by Janet Somerville and Del McKenzie. This series will be available for the CBC in paperback form in 1968. For a discussion of Dr. King's talk, stay tuned for The Best of Ideas, Part 2, over most of these stations after the news. Alan Maitland speaking. Down my sword and shield, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield, down by the riverside, I'm going to study. This is the CBC Radio Network. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the second installment to the uh, December 1967 Massey Lectures uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., delivered uh, over uh, the CBC. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from on Monday, January 16th, uh, 2023, the federally recognized holiday in honor of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., we will hold our 20th annual Martin Luther King Day rally in March at 8850 Woodward Avenue. That's at the historic St. Matthew St. Joseph's Church, uh, located on Woodward Avenue between King and Holbrook, beginning at noon. Everyone in the Detroit uh, area, metropolitan Detroit, the uh, state of Michigan, southern Ontario, Ohio, are more than welcome uh, to attend this event. It is free and open to the public. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program.
December 25th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into a focus on uh, a legendary uh, African-American uh, figure who emerged uh, from the city of Memphis uh, during the uh, Civil War, post-Civil War period. And uh, that is Eliza Mary Church Terrell. And uh, she, of course, uh, became a leading African-American feminist, intellectual, and organizer, uh, beginning in the 1880s and extending uh, through uh, the period uh, of the mid-20th century. Let's listen to a lecture by Allison Parker on the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Mary Church Terrell. And uh, this is Good evening. African Welcome to this evening's event, Mary Church Terrell, the face of African-American women's suffrage activism with Professor Allison Parker. The Frederick Douglass Institute for African and African-American Studies is proud to co-sponsor this event with the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, alongside the Black Alumni Network and the Women's Network, in partnership with Susan B. Anthony Center and the Paul J. Burgett Burgett Intercultural Center and Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. I would also want to say thank you to our captioners and interpreters who are helping ensure that this program is accessible. Before we get started, I wanted to mention some few, a few housekeeping uh, things. Uh, might be helpful Zoom tips for you out there in the virtual world. If you would like to ask a question, please submit it anytime through the Q&A function that is located at the bottom of the screen. 
Today's event articulates an important part of the study of black life and black struggle, the role of intersectionality, particularly being black and woman in history and our present. As a black feminist thinker and doer, the importance of Mary Church Terrell as a visionary educator and activist within and outside black communities cannot be overstated. I remember reading a speech she delivered in 1908, a significant year for many of you out there, where she stated that, quote, the incomparable Frederick Douglass did many things of which I, as a member of that race, which he served so faithfully, am well proud. But there is nothing he ever did in his long and brilliant career in which I take keener pleasure and greater pride than I do in his ardent advocacy of equal political rights for women and the effective service he rendered to the cause of women's suffrage. Let us never forget that one of the forefathers of black studies was indeed a feminist. And today's lecture and its partnership is a key reminder that this legacy yet remains. Today we will hear more about the esteemed Mary Church Terrell from Professor Allison Parker. Allison M. Parker is History Department Chair and Richards Professor of African American of American history at the University of Delaware. She has, a re- she, has, she has research and teaching interests at the intersections of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and the law in U.S. history. Allison Parker is the author of two books, Articulating Rights, 19th Century American Women on Race, Reform, and the State, and the book from which her talk is drawn today, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. As director of the Frederick Douglass Institute of African and African American Studies, I am glad to introduce Professor Allison Parker. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Let me work on sharing my screen. Okay. Um, Hello. I want to start just by thanking John Cullen, Jessica Guzman-Ray for inviting me, and Caroline Tolbert for organizing this event, along with all the many co-sponsors. What I'd like to talk with you about today is Black women's suffrage activism through the life and activism of the feminist, suffragist, and civil rights activist, Mary Church Terrell. Terrell is best known as the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW, in 1896, and as a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in 1909. She was the first Black woman to graduate with a bachelor's and a master's degree from a predominantly white college, Oberlin College, and she then taught at the nation's best segregated public school, the M Street High School in Washington, D.C., and was then appointed as the first Black woman on its Board of Education. Carol had first publicly expressed her support for women's suffrage at the National Council of Women's Convention in 1891. The first large suffrage meeting which I attended was the one in Washington at which women who were interested in the subject were present from all over the world. Among the women sitting on the platform that at that meeting were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Anthony. The presiding officer requested that all those to rise who believed that women should have the franchise. Although the theater was well filled at the time, comparatively few rose. 
I was among the number who did. I forced myself to stand up, although it was hard for me to do so. In the early 1890s, it required a great deal of courage for a woman publicly to acknowledge before an audience that she believed in suffrage for her sex when she knew the majority did not. Terrell's description of the reticence of women who had chosen to attend a major women's convention suggests that a pro-suffrage position in the 1890s was still a daring radical stance. Having attended a convention of the newly merged National American Women Suffrage Association, referred to as NASA, Terrell later recalled, when the members of the association were registering their protest against a certain injustice, I arose and said, as a colored woman, I hope this association will include in the resolution the injustices of various kinds of which colored people are the victims. Are you a member of this association? Miss Susan B. Anthony asked. No, I am not, I replied, but I thought you might be willing to listen to a plea for justice by an outsider. Then, Miss Anthony invited me to come forward, write out the resolution, which I wished incorporated with the others, and hand it to the Committee on Resolutions, and thus began a delightful, helpful friendship. Anthony subsequently invited Terrell to speak to the Political Equality Club in Rochester, and acting on her social equality principles, Anthony hosted her as a guest in her home. Although Terrell was prominent and well-respected, she regularly described her status and the status of all Black women as inescapably circumscribed by race. A white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. Colored men have only one, that of race. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in the country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Terrell explained that African-American women call ourselves colored not because we are narrow and wish to lay special emphasis on the color of our skin, but because the, our peculiar status in this country at the present time seems to demand that we stand by ourselves in the special work for which we have organized. The members of the new National uh, Association of Colored Women came together in 1896 with Mary Church Terrell as their president to defend black womanhood by combating the intersecting forces of sexism and racism. And this is a photo from 1896. And here with the hat with the fruit and the feathers is Mary Church Terrell. Um, over here on the ground is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett and her son, Charles Barnett above, who is in the hands of Alice Dunbar Nelson, a writer and activist in her own right. So leading black club women recognize that the struggle for the vote must extend full citizenship to all African-Americans. Voting rights for black women were always inseparable from questions of black men's disenfranchisement and the broader black freedom struggle. Terrell appreciated Anthony's personal warmth, but recognized that Anthony was increasingly ignoring the concerns of African-Americans as she led a narrowing of the white 
suffrage movement's focus from a broader women's rights platform told the sole goal of gaining national voting rights for white women. Anthony and white suffragists also disrespected other black suffragists. In 1897, when Adela Hunt Logan, the accomplished lady principal of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, asked Anthony if she could speak at a NASA convention, Anthony replied, I would not on any account bring on our platform a woman who had a 10,000th part of a drop of African blood in her veins who should prove an inferior speaker because it would militate so against the colored race. Ignoring Logan's accomplishments, Anthony assumed that having an ex-slave at the podium would be a humiliating disaster. Unfortunately, Anthony and other white suffrage leaders focused so narrowly on white woman suffrage that they were willing to sacrifice others to achieve their goal. However, disingenuously, Anthony claimed that once women got the right to vote, racial justice would prevail, that any means to get women the vote would hasten the demise of both sexism and racism. At the 1898, National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention, a pregnant Mary Church Terrell gave a major speech determined to engage in social justice causes less than two months before her due date. Her husband wrote to her father exclaiming, she is the only colored woman invited to speak. The other speakers will be women such as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frances Willard. After the event and bursting with pride, he reported back, Molly immortalized herself last night before the Woman Suffrage Convention. She made a magnificent address in admirable style. The theater was filled with the best men and women of the country, and their reception of Molly's speech amounted to an ovation. To emphasize just how well her speech was received, he wrote that several white women went so far as to hug and kiss her when the meeting closed. White and colored people mounted the stage and fairly took her off her feet. It was indeed the greatest triumph of her life. Referring to segregation and racial barriers, he noted, when white women publicly embrace a colored woman, you know the reason for it must be strong. This speech and its reception allowed the Terrell couple to take their minds off of her fourth risky pregnancy and focus on their mutual support for women's suffrage. Fortunately, Soon after, they welcomed their first healthy living child, a daughter named after the Black Revolutionary Era poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Depending upon whether Terrell was addressing a Black or a white audience, she shifted her approach to the subject of women's voting rights. For instance, in her 1906 article in The Voice of the Negro, she assumed that many of her readers would be black men, and so paid a pointed tribute to Susan B. Anthony soon after her death. Although Terrell did not condone Anthony's move away from advocating for African Americans' uh, rights after the Civil War, she did point to the Reconstruction era betrayal of the Republican Party of white and black women's goal of universal suffrage as an explanation, but not a justification. 
Anthony and many other black and white women had been deeply disappointed when abolitionist men had rejected the goal of universal suffrage in favor of the 14th and 15th amendments that enfranchised only black men and not women of either race. In the decades after the Civil War, Susan B. Anthony solicited African-American men's support for women's suffrage without granting reciprocal support for their full citizenship rights. Yet, Terrell nonetheless appreciated what Anthony had done for the cause of women's suffrage. Much later, in 1928, for instance, Terrell was the only African-American woman to have her name inscribed on a plaque unveiled at a commemoration of Anthony and the early women's rights movement. Carol's education and light skin tone gave her some access to white suffragists. She repeatedly tried to engage in an interracial dialogue by networking with and challenging white suffragists, including in more intimate social settings. For instance, in 1910, she wrote in her diary, I heard Mrs. Ida Harper, the suffragist and biography biographer of Susan B. Anthony, lecture on the evolution of the woman suffrage movement in an elegant apartment. Wealthy white women were present. When, as Terrell described it, Mrs. Harper criticized colored men for opposing woman suffrage. Terrell forcefully responded to the assembled women, insisting that white men have done the same. After women of the American Revolution helped to free white men from England's tyranny, these same men placed a yoke upon their necks and taxed them without representation, she reminded them. But later, during the reception, when Harper directly asked Terrell if she felt bad about her critique of black men, Terrell did not want to shut down her access to these white women and the spaces where she could make these challenges, and so she denied that her feelings had been hurt. Regardless of white women's stance, black suffragists always simultaneously pursued their own voting rights agenda. In 1908, for example, Terrell and other NACW leaders petitioned for a constitutional amendment to extend the vote to all women and asked for protections for black men's voting rights. One section resolved that we the members of the Equal Suffrage League representing the National Association of Colored Women through its suffrage department in the interest of enfranchisement and taxation with representation asked to have enacted such legislation as will enforce the 14th and 15th amendments of the Constitution of our country, the United States of America, throughout all its sections. They wanted black men to be able to vote. After all, any new woman suffrage amendment would be immediately undermined in the South, just as the Reconstruction Amendments had been, unless Congress passed strong and effective enforcement provisions and the relevant government agencies actually enforced them. In addition to public speeches and writing, Mary Church Terrell found more militant and direct suffrage activism appealing. Terrell had long known of and admired the radical techniques employed by British women. For instance, she had recorded in her 1909 diary, I went to hear Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, the militant suffragette, and enjoyed her address immensely. 
Thus, Terrell eagerly joined in a major direct action in the U.S., the 1913 National Votes for Women Parade. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns organized this huge suffrage parade for the National American Women Suffrage Association for March 3rd, 1913, which was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Alice Paul, a young college-educated Quaker, tried at first to exclude black women in order to pacify Southern white suffragists. Now, I'm going to take some time to describe what really happened for black women at this march, because it's something that most historians and popular culture have missed. Most historical and popular cultural accounts correctly describe the anti-lynching activist and suffragist Ida B. Wells Barnett's refusal to march in a segregated delegation at the back of the parade and rightly celebrate her defiant insertion of herself into an otherwise all-white Illinois delegation. What is less well-known is that this was not a solitary act of one defiant woman. From what I had learned of Carol as I was writing my biography, I could not imagine that she had agreed to march segregated at the back, although she must have if Wells Barnett really was the only one who resisted. So I decided to research her participation more carefully. What I found is something that a few Black women's historians had already told us, but that has not been accepted as the real story. Many dozens of Black women, including Terrell, marched all throughout the first suffrage parade in the nation's capital. Those Black suffragists who joined state delegations were at the back, but only because organizers had a carefully choreographed chart for the parade and planned for all the states to assemble there. A Black Chicago newspaper captured the scene that day. The Equal Suffrage Parade was viewed by thousands of people from all parts of the U.S. No color line existed in any part of it. Afro-American women proudly marched right by the side of the white sisters. Carol served as a mentor to Howard University's new Delta Sigma Theta sorority, whose members organized to take action in politics and reform movements. Terrell, who wrote the oath for the Deltas and became an honorary lifetime member, negotiated with Alice Paul on their behalf. The members wanted to march together. The key question was whether they would be able to march along with the other contingents of college women. A telegraph from the Suffrage Association to Alice Paul on the day of the parade capitulated to protests from black women agreeing that black suffragists could march without restrictions. Carol explained that when some of the white suffragists still objected to having the colored girls of Howard University march in the parade, it was Terrell's friend, the lawyer and suffragist Inez Mulholland, who insisted that they be given a place with the pupils of the other school. Dressed in their caps and gowns, the 25 Howard University Deltas marched alongside the other college delegations, not at the back. Mary Beard, the feminist and progressive U.S. historian, invited Terrell and other NACW members to stride alongside the New York City Women's Suffrage Party, which they did. Black women even carried the state banner for New York and Michigan. 
As, Cliff, as Carrie Clifford's recounted in the NAACP's The Crisis, Black suffragists marched as artists, homemakers, trained nurses, teachers, writers, college graduates, and musicians, among others. An editorial by NAACP leader W.B. Du Bois described the politics surrounding the participation of Black suffragists. The Women's Suffrage Party had a hard time settling the status of Negroes in the Washington Parade. Finally, an order went out to segregate them in the parade, but telegrams and protests poured in, and eventually the colored women marched according to their state and occupation without let or hindrance. Du Bois captured the fluidity and chaos of the situation, as well as the resolve of the black women who organized, protested, and won the capitulation of the white suffragists. If we better understood that black suffragists collectively fought for and won the right to participate throughout, we would have a different story to tell of black women's pivotal role in the suffrage movement. Despite their differences, Carol continued to admire Alice Paul's use of direct action. During World War I, she and her daughter Phyllis, then in her late 20s, were among only a few Black women who are documented as having joined the National Women's Party in peacefully picketing in front of the White House. Carrying banners that called for women's voting rights, Terrell willingly risked arrest and violent attacks. The women who picketed were called traitors for protesting the U.S. government policies during wartime, but persisted nonetheless. Um, thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have, including on how this story of women's suffrage fits into the larger biography of Mary Church Terrell. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor Parker. That was wonderful and a very uh, complex, actually, set of uh, conversations around Mary Church Terrell. Um, I'm from Chicago, so we say Terrell. I've, I've known about it since second grade, which is funny. Uh, but uh, I think you all say Terrell, which I, I well, get it. Her, fa her family told me it's Terrell, so Terrell. I had to, I had oh, to say Terrell. So, so that's okay. So that's yeah. even that's that's a southern uh, way of saying it as well. Well, if you would exactly. like to ask questions, we are here. Uh, Professor Parker is here to take questions from the audience. We really want you to ask any questions that might be on your mind. Um, you know, I can throw out one if I don't see any, but I definitely uh, think this is a great opportunity uh, to have some Q and A before uh, the panel that we're having shortly thereafter. I know you're out there thinking, so I'll, I'll just ask a, a very quick question. Um, who would you say are some of the interlocutors of uh, Mary Church Terrell? <laughs> I'm trying, right? Um, you know, who would you say were her, her main interlocutors and those folks who had her? Because I often think about who had her political ear, right? Who was in her ear uh, beyond Susan B. Anthony and those folks? But, like, who were the, the folks who she was in conversation with? 
Um, she was in conversation with a lot of other Black women who are associated with a kind of early intersectional politics and feminism as well. She was um, a classmate of Anna Julia Cooper, who was another Black intellectual, um, also went to Oberlin College, um, as well as Ida Gibbs Hunt, who was from another very uh, prestigious African-American family and spent time with her husband, who was an ambassador um, and served abroad. And um, then as time grew on, she met people like um, Mary McLeod Bethune and um, Margaret Murray Washington and a whole variety of other women. Since she lived, she was born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee, and then um, that was during the Civil War, so she was only enslaved for two years, and then um, lived in Memphis until she went to school um, as a young girl in the North because her parents wanted her to get a better education, and they had set up their own uh, businesses, so were able to pay for her to get an education. And then um, she lived until 1954, the same year as Brown v. Board of Education. And so this incredibly long life means that she was um, friends with and collaborated with so many different kinds of activists because she was literally active for 60 years. So the part that I talked about, I know, so the part that I talked about today is the tedious part of her story, but it's a very interesting part and it is the part that connects the most with uh, Rochester and uh, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. She met Frederick Douglass at an inaugural ball um, for Harrison um, in the 1870s. And then um, when she moved to Washington, D.C., they became friends and collaborators, and he was her mentor. So they ended up um, inviting Ida B. Wells to come and um, give talks on anti-lynching right after uh, the murder of Thomas Moss and their other friends and collaborators in Memphis. Um, and that was in 1892, 1893. So she only um, worked with him for the last few years of his life since Frederick Douglass died in 1895. But um, she was she was the one who founded um, Frederick Douglass Day, the first day um, to really commemorate him in a public school system. And she did it because, as the quote that you had at the beginning said, he... Um, was somebody who supported suffrage from early on. And she really uh, appreciated that he was both, he was an intersectional activist yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of questions out here for you. So look, I'm, I'm glad we, we primed, okay? Um, so one of the questions out here uh, is, did Terrell have a relationship with the League of Women Voters? Um, yeah, she did. I, uh, the League of Women Voters, was not entirely open to black women early on. And um, they've actually taken some responsibility for that more recently and have looked more introspectively at their past. So she wasn't able to fully engage with them, um, although she would meet 
their members because their members were also members of other organizations that she was involved in. She was an active Republican because like almost all black women until the 1930s and the New Deal, they were Republicans as in the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. So if we think about it that way, that's where that came from. Beautiful. So what did Terrell's suffrage activism look like post the 19th Amendment? So after the 19th Amendment, she wanted to participate in the National Women's Party that Alice Paul had, in spite of the fact that she knew, or maybe because she knew, that Alice Paul was not going to take uh, Black women's concerns seriously unless they inserted themselves in these organizations. So even as they always had their own organizations, they believed strongly in the need to have um, organizations that were um, they needed to join white women whenever they could. Um, so she asked Alice Paul if the National Association of Colored Women could be um, a member of the National Women's Party. And Alice Paul said no, because she claimed that it was not a party that or a group that focused on gender and feminism, but on race. So she was completely unable to see intersectionality. And so um, Alice Paul and Terrell and several other women met together and had this kind of heated exchange. And Terrell was allowed to come as a visiting delegate to talk at the um, 1921 convention. And she was a, a lifelong member of the National Women's Party, but she was never able to break through Alice Paul's very singular approach to white women's equality. Yeah, that, that's really, really helpful. A um, couple more questions out here. Uh, we have about five more minutes, so it's great. Um, so this is a, 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 a big question. Maybe I'll, I'll couple them together um, in terms of thinking, how did Carol and others balance activism, careers, and family life? Like, what support systems did they have, networks? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, one thing that I tried to allude to uh, by mentioning that her pregnancy that was successful was her fourth, is that she had had a series of tragic um, situations with late miscarriages, a stillbirth, and then a baby who lived for two days, but then died in a segregated DC hospital with an improvised incubator. And she always believed that racism was involved. So kind of like Serena Williams, here you have one of the most elite um, and fairly well-off white uh, black woman of her day um, who was unable to get good maternity care, right? So, so she really believed and felt the need to fight for black women's health and welfare and the health and welfare of their families. So when she became the president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1896, you know, she still hadn't had a successful pregnancy. And um, this was incredibly important to her. So she founded the first kindergartens for black children and helped um, create day nurseries, but also advocated for black women to become nurses and doctors because she knew what now scientists say is true, that black doctors and nurses provide better care because they're invested in the health of black women. So to do all of this work, and once she had her own baby, her mother retired from her career as a 
uh, hair salon owner and came down um, from New York uh, where she was living to Washington, D.C. to help be um, a child care provider for their child. And she had a very supportive husband who was equally interesting, Robert uh, H. Terrell, who had been enslaved for the first seven years of his life, but ended up graduating from Harvard University and getting a law degree from Howard University and becoming the first municipal court judge in Washington, D.C., who was black. So they were a power couple, and she could not have done what she did without his support because um, it was she was really stepping outside of the boundaries of what um, black and white women were expected to be doing. So she, he did receive pressure, but he was very supportive of her career. Great. Thank you so much. There's one last question pressing there that I'm sure a lot of folks are asking, and uh, one uh, contributor asked this question, which was, what would you say is the legacy of Mary Church Terrell today? Is it Stacey Abrams? I mean, is it Michelle Obama? Like, where do we find, where do you position uh, the legacy? Um, both of those women would be a good place to start, but also Kamala Harris, because one of the things that um, she was really interested in is Terrell was a political being. And she said if she had lived at a different time, she would have wanted to be a senator. And truthfully, I think she would have wanted to be president. Um, but she was unable to run. And so the, the best thing that she could find was she ended up working on a white woman's campaign, the, one of the first white women to um, win a primary um, but she didn't win the election, uh, Ruth Hannah McCormick, in 1930. Um, and it took another, I think, 30, 30 years for a white woman to win and 60 years for a black woman to win into the Senate. Um, so she was way before her time. But um, Kamala Harris, in her um, acceptance speech, actually mentioned um, Mary Church Terrell as one of her predecessors who had paved the way for her. So I'd like to make that claim as somebody who we could look to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us to answer these wonderful questions. And thank the audience for uh, these great questions and really being engaged. Uh, we now are going to move to our panel discussion. And so I am going to introduce my wonderful colleague, June Wan, who is the director of the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, and also an Associate Professor of German. My esteemed colleague, June, how are you? Hi, thanks very much. Um, thanks, Jeffrey, and thank you, Allison, for sharing um, your important and fascinating work. Uh, so Allison will be joined by our esteemed panelists uh, to talk more about the important role Black women have played in changing the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality throughout the United States the challenges and repercussions they encounter, and the profound resilience they possess in the face of adversity, um, all in 20 minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, so clearly, we're not going to be able to discuss everything. But um, So let me start by um, introducing the panelists, and then I will essentially take a step back and let them speak with each other. Um, but you, the audience is also welcome to ask questions, and I will try to weave them into the conversation. Um, so the first panelist I'm going to introduce is Ananda Benbo. She, uh, class of 2015, who is using her passion for language and issues in education to host the Black Language Podcast, featuring conversations about Black people and their languages. 
um, Ananza, if you could turn on your camera, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, the next panelist is Tiffany Taylor-Smith, class of 1991, a doctoral candidate and assistant vice president for diversity and inclusion at the University of Dayton and co-chair of the University of Rochester's Women's Network. Welcome. And the last panelist is Brianna Theobald, an assistant professor of history here at the University of Rochester. Uh, she teaches classes on U.S. women's history and the history of Native America. Um, so maybe just to start off, um, we can have, I'll just throw out a general question to start the conversation. Uh, thinking about sort of stories like that, that of Mary Church Terrell, um, how, what role is, does the telling of these stories and of learning about people like Mary Church Terrell have for our current day, um, and maybe even sort of more personally for you as scholars, as activists? Would anyone like to start? <laughs> well, well, I'll take it. I, I think as, as a scholar and as a practitioner, even just hearing um, the work and research that Allison has done, which, thank you, Allison, I, part of it is like, okay, what, what intrigued you about this project? But that's a sidebar. Um, I, I want to thank you for your research and your work and sharing of that. And I think for me, as a practitioner in diversity, equity, and inclusion, even in our current climate, it is so important that we learn these stories. I mean, I continue, and I, I graduated from the university in 1991, I'm a mother of three daughters, um, and I still struggle, and, and someone who is pursuing a doctorate degree, the stories that were not taught to me um, as, as, a, as a high school student, as an elementary student, as a, um, someone pursuing her bachelor's degree, unless I took specific courses, and someone who's earned a master's degree and is now pursuing her PhD, it, it is continuing to be clear to all many who choose to acknowledge there are a lot of stories that have been omitted from U.S. history um, in so many ways. And, it, and, and we're at this moment of truth, this is time of somewhat reconciliation, where we have an opportunity, particularly those who are in education, to really look at what are we missing. Um, and, and to benefit from, from Allison's work around how do we understand the story and what were the complexities that were involved in the experiences that she had um, in trying to move the, to move the movement, if you will, um, for women's suffrage and engage black women. And, and, and you know, I, I, I often wonder too, as, as a, as a light skinned black woman, how that influenced her ability to be in these spaces. As a light-skinned Black woman, I, I find myself often puzzled by that as well, the way in which I'm received in different spaces and how that impacts my ability to ally, champion, or be an accomplice for others who are not in those spaces. Yeah, um, to add, um, I feel like as a young Black woman, it's um, it's been really important for me to know that since enslavement and perhaps you know, beyond, Black women have always had an analysis of not just race, but where race and gender intersect. Um, and I think that that means that for Black people of multiple identities, sexual orientation, ability, class, that there's always been an analysis, you know, an intersectional analysis. Um, and so, sorry, I took some notes on this, and so I just want to make sure I'm getting everything, because I like the way I put it. Um, 
And so, oh yeah, and so it means that like when current generations like myself are silent um, or told that we're too sensitive, right, or told that we're making things up, like we're making up terms and we're making up, you know, uh, identities, where it's like one, all terms and identities are to some, you know, are, are made up, but two, it's like that just comes from complete ignorance. Um, it comes from lives meant to derail us when we know that we have always existed, right? This work has always existed. And so I think when we hear stories like that, um, and, uh, I think for those of us who are doing work, right, with our communities, it's really empowering, right, to know that, you know, black feminism did not start in the 70s, like will often be told to us, right? And that, in fact, you know, we've always been doing this work when I think about black women, um, doing birth work during enslavement, right? And so, like, we've always been intersectional about our practices. And so I think for me, when I think about these stories and think about my day-to-day work, in addition to the podcast, I also work at a high school. It's about how am I creating an environment um, that's safe for my students, um, that's safe for students with, you know, um, with multiple identities, and how am I, one, keeping up with the times and knowing how the world is changing, right, so I can be a better advocate for them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's a, gr- a great and such an important point to think about these long legacies of, of black women as um, black women and other women of color. So my own research is in um, indigenous women, Native American women, but um, so black women and women of color as theorists, right, doing, doing um, in, in various ways and through experience and so many other things, right, doing really important theory. Um, have this, these legacies of, of important um, um, intersectional feminist theory. And then the other thing that I was thinking of is, um, you know, I think with this, there's this way to, to get back into to Tiffany's point about how histories are told or not told, right? I, I think that there's this way in which sometimes when we think about um, activist histories, that the the activists can sort of, um, you know, it's like they're in the distant past, right? Um, and their lives are somehow just kind of decontextual. I mean, they are like activists, right? And so there's, we get this kind of pub, their public lives, some of their public work. And I think what, what, what I was thinking about that's really helpful about reading a biography like this, that really gets at the texture of um, Terrell's, Terrell's life, right? As a, as a, um, a full person who's, struggling, right, going through all of these real struggles alongside her work, as, you know, so many people are, like, that's the reality, right, of, mm-hmm. of activist work and these histories of activist work. And there's a way, in which, as I was, as I was reading it, there is a way in which I think that looking at one person's life like that in such complexity and depth, and, and, and situating her in these, this evolving historical context can also serve to remind us in this moment, um, that we are also historical actors, right? In ways that I think sometimes, um, at least at the, the kind of student level, we can almost forget, right? That, that we study history in the past, these women's stories. Um, but you think of so many of the issues, right? That she was, that it, with which Terrell engaged, um, maternal, um, maternal health, right? And healthcare, um, educational curriculum, you know, 1619 project, right? How do we understand our histories? Um, uh, police brutality, um, voting rights, right? 
Um, I mean, so many of these historical um, issues are issues that folks are, of course, struggling with today. And I, I think it's useful to remember that we are historical actors in a historical moment that future generations and future scholars, right, will be analyzing as well. Yeah, I mean, you all raised such really interesting points. And I do think that when you look at the life of one Black woman in the past, we can learn a lot from that. And one thing that I think is important is this idea of taking people out of one particular moment in their life or one particular action that they're best known for. Um, like in her case, she's best known as the president of the National Association of Colored Women. But that was actually like the early, one of her earliest acts. And then she had decades and decades of activism after that. And just like Rosa Parks is, is pretty much known for sitting on the bus, but she was an activist for many decades before that happened. And um, people aren't aware of her big involvement in the NAACP, although there's been a lot of work now, especially through uh, biographies that have been coming out recently that have tried to help to kind of unpack some of that. And in the case of Terrell, I, going back to what Tiffany was talking about with her light skin color and privilege and how that played a part for her in getting access to white communities, she was aware of that and she used it to her advantage whenever she could. One of the things that she regularly did is go speak to governors about getting pardons or other ways to try to end death sentences to black women who were poor and uneducated and very dark skinned usually and who were in prison. Um, some of them were even teenagers um, with death sentences. And then after she would meet with the governor in the state, whether it was Virginia or whether it was um, uh, Georgia or other places, she would then go and get access to the women in prison and meet them there. So she wasn't an elite in the sense of elitist, that she wouldn't, uh, you know, use her, she used her power as much as she had it to try to gain access to people and help change their lives. So um, she was aware of that, and but was very conscious about it. And um, she, the term, unceasing militant that I used for the title of the book actually comes from a friend and associate of hers, the actor and activist and singer Paul Robeson, who described her as an unceasing militant in the struggle for black freedom. And so that was his um, obituary, in fact, for her when she died. And it seemed to me that it was a really meaningful thing to talk about her as someone who uh, was unceasing in her militancy, which doesn't mean that she also didn't make compromises at, or go uh, join these meetings with white women that were you know, somewhat problematic because she always wanted to be in those spaces to be the voice of dissent. But it does mean that she also worked with communists. And she, um, you know, when the NAACP decided that it didn't want to take on cases of black men accused uh, wrongly of rape, like with the uh, Scottsboro Nine, she worked with the Communist Party to try to get them freed. So um, she was really willing to step out of line, if you want to put it that way, and to do direct action, like the picketing um, that she started with um, 
the National Women's Party in World War I uh, and continued all the way up to the end when she led a successful campaign to desegregate Washington, D.C. in 1953, so before uh, Montgomery, Alabama and before Brown v. Board. Um, maybe, does anybody have any questions within the panel for each other? I mean, I have some questions as well, but I wanted to give you a chance in case you have something that you would like to ask each other. One of the things I just wanted to, to raise, I think, is, is, is evident in the way that which Allison tells the story, and it's so important in what we see today. Regardless of our identities, even embedded in the story, you see other women who there were women who were against her participating because of her her race, but there were also women who advocated and allied and championed for her. And and even in telling the story, Allison, that you share with us, had those women not stepped up, there were certain ways in which she would have been blocked from being able to accomplish what she was able to do. And and for me, that raises the question given our positionality, regardless of our identity, how we advocate for others, what, whether they be LGBTQ+, um, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander identities, um, as well as indigenous identities, like how, regardless of our own, how we advocate, ally, and champion, um, and accomplice in many ways, for identities that we don't belong to, how important that is. And I think that that's very transparent in your story, that there were those women um, and some men who were willing to say she needs to be a part of this. We need to have them in this space engaging in the suffrage movement. Well, mm -hmm. and I would just add to that, which I think is a really important point, not maybe regardless of, but also very much because of, right? I mean, I think that the ways we're not something is also important. Um, and I'm saying this as a Korean American who does German Jewish studies, right? Um, that, the ways in which I'm not German and Jewish are very much about me being Korean American. And so I think um, when we think about allyship, it is also important to think about not only sort of what the, what the positions are that we're looking at, but what, where we're coming, where we're positioned within those things, right? Yeah, and one of the things that you make me think about is this question of being willing to be uncomfortable and to have difficult conversations and to put yourself in with people who are different from you and learn and listen and think about what they're saying and then try to figure out um, how you want to interact with that. And Carol did that, but I think a lot of contemporary women have to do the same kind of thing with each other and with others to make this work. And it's the whole life balance piece for me, too. I mean, I, I didn't know the story about her um, four miscarriage, well, three, and then the fourth birth of her child. Like, that's the, the multiple dualities that we carry as women. We're not just these, these workers, these advocates, these social justice champions. We also have personal lives and really thinking about, I think that was the piece for me, just understanding the, the, the significance of that that that's not separate. Like that is a part of who she is. She was living and thankfully uh, through the support of her partner was really able to continue to do the work that she did. So again, that's one of those ones where I appreciate that being a part of the story as well. Um, I would, in thinking about Tiffany and Tiffany's kind of comments about allyship and, um, and 
really coalition building too, right? And how we think about coalitions and in thinking about what, what June said as well. Um, so a lot of in my research and so my kind of intellectual and some political commitments, right? I'm very interested in, in reproductive justice, which is um, a term coined by black feminists in the 1990s, um, but that stems out of, of um, histories of, of um, reproductive oppression and also uh, long histories um, uh, of, of reproductive activism, right, by, uh, by Black women and Indigenous women and women of color. Um, and one of the things in, in that literature that I've really noticed as a theme is, because um, coalitions have been so important to, to this reproductive justice work. Um, it is a movement kind of based on, on coalition building. And they, they've been, they talk about um, this idea of solidarity through difference. Right. So that that actually like the, the process to, to kind of June's point of, of forming these coalitions actually requires some understanding in, in at least many of the situations in which they're talking about of understanding our differences, too. And I think so one of the ways that that becomes really important is actually understanding the differences in terms of, um, say, uh, indigenous women relationship right to the state right and to their tribal nation and that their goals might be somewhat different um but that there's kind of room for ground if we understand each other and i think in the work that's come out on on suffrage um the historical work that's come out in the last couple of years right to, to commemorate um the centennial welcome back and that was a discussion on the lifetimes and contributions of uh Mary uh, Church Terrell, and of course, um, we are going to be closing out uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today, and if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, that's blogtalkradio.com slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to be closing out our program uh, with the music of Charlie Parker's Quintet live at Carnegie Hall, recorded on December 24th of 1949. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Charlie Parker and the All-Stars. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and a very Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. On piano, ladies and gentlemen, great gentlemen, Al Haig. Al Haig on piano. On trumpet, on trumpet clean from Brooklyn, we bring you Red Rodney. On bass, on bass, Tommy Potter. And finally on drums, Joe Haynes. Did I say Joe? Well, you know I meant Roy. I didn't mean it, really. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to start things off, based on how high the moon, 
Here's Ornithology. Thank you. 
Something that's not boring. A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details.